This is a special call to action to our listeners to financially support this podcast and spread awareness of the Native Plants Dialogue through exclusive Plant Native Nebraska merch at plant-native-nebraska.myspreadshop.com. Wear our designs in your best effort to convert your friends and neighbors, or just simply look cool. Thank you for your continued support in our quest to help Nebraska plant native. Hello, and welcome to the Plant Native Nebraska podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie Barlman. If you are new to tuning in, this show is for native plant enthusiasts, aspiring gardeners, suburban homeowners, growers, and thinkers anxious to learn more about growing Native American plants and creating habitat for wildlife. If this sounds like you, you've come to the right place. In today's episode, Prairies, Pragmatism, and Pollinators, we chat with Benjamin Vogt of Monarch Gardens about reconciliation ecology, the humble dandelion, and messy landscapes. Enjoy. Thanks for being on today with us, Ben. Um, I'm really excited to talk to you about all things prairies and pollinators. Uh, For people who are not already familiar with your work yet, can you tell us a bit more about Monarch Gardens or just a little bit how you got started getting familiar with naturalistic landscapes? Oh, Stephanie, that's a lot. (laughs) I could go in so many ways. Thank you for speaking with me today. I appreciate it and having a chance to uh, educate and, and teach people, but yeah, no, that's I have my hand in in so many different buckets as as uh, underneath the Monarch Gardens umbrella. I mean, I our our primary practice is uh, installing native plant gardens that evoke meadows and and prairies uh, from eastern Nebraska. So we do a lot of lawn conversions um, of various sizes, five hundred square feet, forty thousand square feet. It just it depends. But then I also offer a lot of online classes and offer um, various online webinars throughout the year. And then I'm lecturing across the country. I saw that, that's exciting. Yeah, and uh, let, let, let me tell you what, those are those are doing really well and, they, and people just really seem to find them incredibly helpful. They're, they're just packed with details. So if you, are, if you are a DIY learner, you know, who just needs to take your time and watch something over and over and over, um, those are perfect. Yeah, for the for the second part of that long combobulated question, how <laughs> I mean, how did you even get into this? How did you get started with naturalistic landscapes with the idea of making meadowscape gardens? I the, the, there's there's two parts to the to the main narrative, the main story here. The the first was back in 2007. We got my wife and I got married. We bought a house. It was a blank slate out back. And I had always grown up gardening with my mother, but I wasn't that into it, but I wanted to have a garden and I had had a small one outside in my townhouse, like a hundred square feet. But I said, told her I wanted to have a garden. So we started with 1500 square feet. And then as I'm planting uh, crazily, and you know, one day I noticed some caterpillars on the milkweed and I'm halfway back from the garage with a spray bottle of nasty stuff. And I decided, you know what, maybe I should go on the internet and figure out what these little guys are. 
And it was a slippery slope after that. It was just realizing, hey, man, this 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 is cool. And this space, this space isn't just for me. I'm not out here creating a landscape for, for, for me to enjoy. It's at least equally for other species to enjoy. And I started learning about monarch butterfly troubles and then other butterfly and moth troubles and insect troubles. And I think that's how a lot of us start. So it really just, mm -hmm. it really catapulted from there. And and um, I included some, you know, and, and then I was doing my uh, PhD in English and, and one of my dissertations was a memoir about growing up with my mother gardening. And so I was doing a lot of research into the history of garden design and ecology and prairie ecosystems. So that knowledge just sort of all started to congeal and coalesce and, and propelled me onward. That's so cool that you also have a PhD in English. So I just have to say kudos to you <laughs> for that. <laughs> like not like you need another like piece of credibility, but there you go. Well, it's English. It's not botany. It's not horticulture. I mean, I, I will tell people that and they go, oh, that's so cool. That's And then I'm like, well, I kind of wish I had a PhD in, in horticulture. <laughs> It's funny because your story is similar to mine in that I started out, um, you know, I thought I was going to go to school for creative writing um, and teaching or even journalism. Like mm -hmm. I kind of started out from that approach. Um, I love taking debate and speech in high school. And, you know, it's kind of funny. We stumble into, you know, we get into these situations where we're exposed to nature and it happens to us. And then we're like, wait a second. <laughs> Anybody from any field, yeah, they can stumble into it. I think it's really cool when you talk with people who like went to school for French or engineering or you yeah. know, history. <laughs> like we we all bring, you know, we all bring this the, the, these these cool backgrounds to help us uh, figure our way forward with native plants. For sure, for sure, it's an army of uh, of of all these crossroads uh, sort of people meeting together. So um i also have to say i follow your social media page milk the weed which i just find amusing all the little anecdotes you share and sometimes i just i'm blown away by how accurately you put certain dilemmas um how do you find this time for heavy social media presence i mean you you've been writing books you've got these you know a million irons in the fire if you want to say it that way how do you find all this time for stuff I, I don't have the time for all this stuff. I'm <laughs> I'm 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 burning myself out. To be totally honest with you, it's 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 tricky because you know I look at I look at the social media platforms I'm on, and it, for the most part, I st I stick to platforms that I enjoy using um, outside of just posting, but you know, interacting with others. But you know, Instagram has a different vibe and a different group of people interacting there than Facebook does, than Twitter, or whatever it's called now does, and. And, and and now, you know, TikTok with videos is so important, mm -hmm. but it's just like, oh my God, I can't do anything else. If I'm going to do anything else, I would have to hire somebody to create these things, produce them and, and manage it for me because, mm -hmm. no, I'm, I am definitely at my limit and I do not mm -hmm. have, I mean, every winter I try to create a couple new online classes to put up, but each class takes weeks and weeks to develop. And then mm -hmm. there's another book I want to work on and then I'm installing gardens and, mm -hmm. and there's a kid in the other room. Yeah, mm -hmm. no, there's no mm -hmm. time. <laughs> yeah. time is uh, having enough time is an illusion largely <laughs> um i yeah. am working i mean if i if i have free time between nine and eleven o'clock on sunday night that's when i'm doing something that's just how it works we're making art out of burnout it's okay like we got to do something yeah. with it so um <laughs> so let's delve into your new book this new book of yours is called prairie up um I think it's really great um, in the sense that it breaks down a lot of things that I feel like aren't talked about in other books. 
Um, so I found it very refreshing. But I wanted to go in depth on just even the title of the first chapter, Bringing the Prairie Home. I thought that was kind of a nice evocation um, of bringing nature home, which is this idea championed by Talamy, Doug Talamy, if um, any of our listeners haven't yet read his work. Um, I, I was reading this chapter and I kept thinking of the term reviving wildness. Um, I mean, can we really bring the prairie home? And and if we can, I mean, what does that really look like for the typical suburban homeowner like you or I? Uh, I think that quite the answer to the answer to that question depends on: Are you an ecologist? Are you a garden designer? Are you a home gardener? Are you somebody who just wants to put a couple of asters out front to support as many insects as you possibly can with the limited amount of time and space that you have? Uh, you know, if I look at it from an ecological point of view, can we bring the prairie home? No, we can't. Those ecosystems are gone forever. I live in Lincoln, Nebraska. Uh, the prairie can never exist here in the way that it used to. That does not mean a new prairie or grassland could not develop here over time. Uh, the, I think that the, the trick with prairie gardening in an urban suburban context is that we are we're just trying to bring some of that echo into our lives so we're using we're using endemic plants and native plants uh, to our eco region uh, but we cannot possibly we cannot you know apples to apples replicate the density the diversity uh, as well as just how that landscape shifts and ebbs and flows over time over centuries and thousands of years uh, we 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 just can't do it but i think by echoing the prairie and the home landscape we're educating ourselves we're educating our neighbors and and i think we're educating all of us together about the importance of prairies and how you know tall grass prairie, there's less than 1% of it left. It's threatened and it's incredibly important. And the wildlife that use tall grass prairies, they're still here. We still mm -hmm. see them flying and walking through our suburban landscape. So it's not like all of this is necessarily gone, gone. You know, something I hear a lot, especially from garden designers, is that, well, you can't put a prairie in an urban area because those plants just won't do well in an urban area. Mm -hmm. But there are so many plants from our prairies that thrive in that highly disturbed, compacted clay, baking sun, heat reflected from concrete and buildings. There are tons of native plants that, that thrive in those, in those conditions. So, but, you know, this is a really deep, complicated conversation that definitely mm -hmm. fires up emotions <laughs> about, yeah, can't, can we do this? What does it look like? Um, because a lot of people say, you know, you can't, you can't go back in time. And I'm like, well, duh, no kidding. You can't go back in time. Uh, that's not what we're trying to do here. This is this is about reconciliation ecology, about saying these landscapes are not just for us and the wildlife that use these landscapes are still here. So why can't we, why shouldn't we provide a little bit of an echo that they need to thrive and survive? Mm, another concern I hear from time to time when I talk to people is the wildness um, scares them or, or concerns them. Um, and they say, well, you know, native plants are, are wilder plants and that's not why they're, that's why they're not cultivated in the industry because they're all aggressive and they're all weedy and they, they self-seed like crazy and no one could manage these plants. And I just think, I mean, that can be true for some of the plants, but not all of them. I mean, that's a really big generalization. Oh, yes, it is. But, you know, you know. <laughs> We have to start somewhere and we all start with generalizations before we learn and grow and adapt and discover. So mm -hmm. it's it's a very frustrating generalization. <laughs> uh, 
-hmm. but yeah, it, it depends on the species. It depends on the species you're using together. It, it depends on the pressures of the site, whether that's people walking through the site or something eating it, or we have a really bad drought year, which we're going to have more and more of. Uh, yeah, you know, and, and people always talk about ticks and snakes and and and, and rodents and things. And mm -hmm. um, you know, if we want to address something like ticks, then uh, we need to have actually more ecosystems that are like this, so that we have more predators, so we have more trophic cascades, so we have more balance in the ecosystem, because we are totally out of whack and totally out of balance right now. So of course, ticks are going to thrive when there are no checks for them. So, I mean, why do you think it took people so long collectively to accept these plants for their usefulness? Why did it take them so long? But also, why should we, why should we now care? And why should we think now in terms of like their sustainability, their beauty? Why should these plants matter to us now? Why should they have always mattered? I think you got a little bit of that before. Yeah, yeah, and you are you are good. You're good with these tricky questions because I need a whole hour. Or no, you just need to, everybody just needs to go read my book. You need to read my book, A New Garden Ethic, because I think it's all there in the mm. philosophy and a new garden ethic. Because you know what I run up against all the time is is I think this core idea that we conceive of uh, of gardens as for us, as for humans primarily, and and thinking of of gardens as as other species, it feels like a threat. It feels like we're asking to take ourselves out of the garden. Um, why should you have to plant X species um, if you don't want to, even though it's going to support 200 pollinators, you know, 200 pollinator species. Mm -hmm. And and thinking this way also, also asks us to confront issues, larger issues that we really can't get our heads around, like, like climate change and mass extinction, things that we can't possibly address on our own, but are larger systemic social and cultural issues. Uh, that that require a lot of soul searching and a lot of just really basically change uh, to to the dominant systems we have. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, so first we got to go back and and read this book, A New Garden Ethic, and you know all the other books I could recommend to people off my bookshelves would would also help. Any of Doug Tallamy's books, you got to go back and read them if you haven't already. Um, I I just think it's there's a massive benefit to native plants, whether we're talking about sustainability um, because there's less mowing, there's less watering. If the plants are properly sited, there can be less ma maintenance, less, ma less management. I want to put that caveat in there. I know, because some people think they can plant these things and then just walk away. Yeah, it's still a garden. It's still a garden and there still needs to be effort and time. It's just what that looks like changes. It's, it's mm -hmm. different. Um, mm -hmm. I, I definitely like I like the idea of, you know, just the simple idea of I live in the suburbs, right? And I never worry about if there's like, I know a lot of these cities now, they they have these rules where, you okay, you can only use your sprinkler like once a week or you can't use your sprinkler at all now because there's all these, I mean, there's drought everywhere. Um, not necessarily here this week or last week, but in most parts of the country, we've been struggling with drought and there's all these restrictions on like sprinkler usage. I don't have to worry about that, like largely, mm -hmm. because it takes care of itself. Um, and I don't plant things that don't thrive in the natural habitat and that need pampering with with watering all the time. I just it's so weird being now in this mindset where, you know, you can be driving down the street and you see like all these, you know, especially like in nicer neighborhoods, you be driving down the street and you see all these sprinklers going off and you're like, ha. <laughs> 
Well, <laughs> you know, we're going to see if if that's going to be the status quo 20 years from now. I don't think it is. Uh, no, it's impossible. We're going to be forced into something radically different. Yeah. I think people forget too that native plants can be beautiful. Like not only do they have utilitarian uses, not only are they more sustainable, like goldenrod's fantastic. Why wouldn't you want goldenrod in your garden or little blue stem or, you know, prairie drop seed? Like these are really good looking plants. Like they don't all just look like mangy weeds. Yeah. If it was, if it was me with a client and a typical suburban garden, you know, where are you talking like you're, you might live on a quarter acre lot or smaller, uh, little blue stem. You know, again, it really depends on what kind of plant communities, how much density, how much thickness you have, what the site conditions are like, but little blue stem can be an aggressive self-sower. So, you know, there are caveats to some of these species. Um, It's very, you know, native plants can be very situational. And I think that's something that people do get more acclimated to as they start this dialogue and they join groups or, you know, they, maybe they go to your, uh, your webinar or they take one of your classes or whatnot. And it's like, oh. Okay, I mean, life in in large respects, in general, is situational. Everything's situational. Yes. Um, so it makes sense that horticulture, that what you grow in your yard is also going to not be black. There's a lot of gray areas everywhere. Plants, mm-hmm. plants are useful, right? Plants are useful mm-hmm. uh, in the context of if you have aggressive exotic species in your landscape and you just have had no success knocking them back when, you know, spraying or... Or, or tilling or whatever thing you're going to do. Yeah, bring in a bunch of aggressive native species and see if mm-hmm. they can duke it out. See see if they can win out. If you have a slope with erosion, you know, you want to put in species that have a lot of fibrous roots like grasses and sedges mm-hmm. um, to, to slow that erosion down. So yeah, plants are useful. I like how in your new book, you break plant diversity down to distinct niches. So I thought that was interesting because I've always, you know, known these details about plants. You know, you study plant habit, lifespan, you know, whether something's annual, perennial, wildlife support, how many, like we, there's that uh, NWF finder database where you can go and plug in your zip code and you can see these plants that support however many Lepidopteran species in your area. That's all really neat, but I liked how you broke it down into these niches from the premise of how these work together. Um, can you go a little bit more into that for us? Uh, I think I think this is one of the one of the topics that can very quickly and easily be overwhelming for a typical home gardener, especially if you just have a couple of hours on a weekend to to be out in your landscape. There there are so many things to consider about plants and it's just unavoidable. There's so much more than a plant tag, which tells you four or five things. And and it it could be more applicable to someone living in Ohio than Nebraska, even though we're using the same native plant species. So yeah, when when I'm designing the garden, I'm thinking about a garden, I'm thinking about what plants I wanna use. Yes, I am thinking about how how aggressive are they gonna be and in what ways are they going to be aggressive? Are they aggressive by seed? And is that seed just dropping by the mother plant or is it gonna be flung out far away? Is it gonna spread by root runners? Is it more aggressive in loam or is it more aggressive in clay? Um, will it be less aggressive if it's planted next to other aggressive species? And, you know, so it's always good to plant like with like, right? So aggressive with aggressive and behave with behave. I'm thinking about when the species are going to bloom and bloom succession. Once once the echinacea is done flowering, what comes next? Well, it's probably going to be a latra species. And what's going to come after that? Well, maybe that'll be an allium species. Um, so I'm, and, and then I'm thinking too about 
uh, winter, right? These gardens do not stop mm -hmm. being ecologically beneficial, beneficial or beautiful because brown is the color too. These gardens are still beautiful in the winter. I'm thinking, okay, what are the seed heads going to be like? How strong are the stalks going to be in a heavy windstorm? Um, oh, the, the, you know, the, the, those those sorts of considerations. And and I've only I've only touched on that, right? Because uh, touched on all the things I look at because. And, and uh, when you if you go out to a prairie or or a woodland meadow or um, sedge meadow or something like that, there there are layers to the landscape. There's there are ground cover plants that are filling ground cover niches. There are plants that are two or three feet, four feet tall, that are seasonal ornamental niches. Um, then there are architectural taller plant species. So there are all these layers to the landscape that we have to to consider and think about. I do like how you brought up that brown is also a color because I read that you said that a while back and I was like, yes, brown, yes. brown and black and and dark yellow. Those are and all whites so and creams. Yeah. You know, think about <laughs> think about aster, aster, aster uh, seed heads, they're umbels. Once those seeds blow away, you're left with these beautiful creamy white bracts. They're mm -hmm. they're so cool when you look down at them from above and, and and they're backlit with all the oranges and, and reds and browns and blacks and tans and yeah brown is a well, color too I mean I sit on my front porch um you know some of the warmer days in winter right or even just late fall um when everything's like kind of starting to to turn its you know brownish color undesirable colors maybe to my neighbors but I really sit there and I look at it and I'm like I'm looking at, you know, the lawn that's dying off, right? And and I'm looking at my garden and I'm looking at the lawn and I'm like, is mine really not prettier than that? <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm so confused because to me, it's not ugly. It's like a kaleidoscope, you know, it's always, it, no matter what time of year it is, I mean, maybe except for very, very early spring when everything's short because I finally, you know, cut back, you know, yeah. things, whatever that's like it's blast stage but the rest of the year when when all the top growth is there and the seed heads are there no matter what time of year it is it's, it's always interesting to look at and I've, it's so hard to cut down know. the winter garden it's it breaks my heart every year i know i know and it's like you, you push it off later and later and but at some point you got to do it <laughs> well i mean granted that being said and i've heard you talk i think you talked to uh, um, bob henrickson about this like there's some areas maybe in your property or people's property where you can get away with basically not cutting things back at all. You can let it go a little wilder and just let it regrow through the old stuff. I mean, I do that in some areas mm -hmm. of my property that are, you know, not, I don't have to upset my neighbors by, you know, letting some areas be more wilder, but. Um, yeah, you can also you can also rotate that. So maybe one year you cut back one area, and the next year you don't. And that way, anything that's overwintering in that area will will not be nearly as disturbed. And this sort of mimics disturbance in the wild. That's a good degree, idea. As much as you can on a small suburban lot. I also wanted to bring up. I I read this part uh, about heavily planting plant species together for bees to work less stressfully. I thought that was really great imagery. Um, and I also like the idea of just for us planning things together in drifts so that we can see them. Mm -hmm. um, is that something that you stress to people when they take your classes, like planting things in groups as opposed to sporadic individual plantings of things? 
Yes, masses and drifts. Yeah, the, the thing about there are a lot of a lot of bee species who you know they are practicing floral floral fidelity, which means when one plant species is in bloom, they're going to try and just focus on that plant plant species because it, it's a lot easier, especially if there's a big mass of it. Um, they don't have to expend as much en energy foraging across a larger area uh, looking for pollen uh, for their young. Uh, so yeah, with with the with with this design uh, method. Of, of massing and, and drifting, it's it's all about, I mean, it's not just about uh, replicating how plants grow in the wild because some plants don't like to be massed and drift. They like to be loners. Um, a, a lot of plant species are, are fine if you put them in groups of five or drift of 15 or something or whatnot. But when you have, let's say you have Echinacea purpurea, everybody knows purple coneflower. Uh, you want that in your, you want that in your front yard that, that you're converting from lawn right, wink, wink. wink. Um, you're not just going to put one coneflower here, one coneflower <laughs> there, and, and it's going to look like this crazy cacophony, right? So it's like somebody just vomited out a bunch of plants. We, we don't want that. Your neighbors don't want that. We, your neighbors, I mean, they're already going to look at your landscape and be like, if it's not lawn, it's automatically weedy, even if it's purposely and intentionally planted with well-behaved native uh, plant species. But uh, whenever we walk by a wilder landscape, like out in a prairie, the first thing our eyes are going to do is try to find order from the quote unquote chaos of the landscape, right? We're going to mm -hmm. be looking for cues in the landscape where our eyes can rest and focus so that we can read the wildness around it and feel safer in the wildness. This is all about genetic memory from evolving in grasslands and looking out for perceived dangers into the distance so we can see over plants and through plants and, and just see what's coming at us. So if you have coneflowers, maybe you're going to put a group of three or five of them together in over 500 square feet, and then you're going to repeat that group of five, and you're going to repeat that group of five. And so that way, when those are all in bloom, it's it has a little bit more tidy look to it. It's a little bit more legible, a little bit more readable, but you still have all the ecosystem services, all the benefits. Mm. And that color really pops when it's blooming. If there's If we're planting in mass, like that yes. color is much yes. more vibrant, visible, dramatic against the backdrop of whatever else is around it. Yes, and 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 you know it's going to be a bigger beacon for pollinators flying overhead when you're using a larger mass. And and the larger your garden becomes, uh, the the larger your mass is probably going to become. So if you have ten thousand square feet, you're not just going to be planting five echinacea at a time. You might be planting fifteen echinacea mm -hmm. in masses across the landscape. Mm -hmm. And echinacea purpurea works well for that because it doesn't mind being massed together. I wouldn't do that. The Sclepius tuberosa, orange butterfly weed, because it tends to grow singly or just in pairs in a prairie. Likes to be mm. a loner. Mm. I was, I, I'm glad you circled back around to that because I was like, I'm curious about the ones that are supposed to be loners or like to be loners. Um, what would be like another one you'd say is is better to not plant on mass? Maybe like Baptisia. I don't know. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, our Baptisia species, yeah, absolutely. Um, even even the smaller ones like Baptisia minor, which is really only two feet by two feet wide. I was definitely thinking about Symphiotrichum oblongifolium, aromatic aster, which is like the last plant to bloom, uh, mm. in, in almost all the gardens. Uh, I mean, it'll go through a couple of hard freezes and still be putting out flowers. But Symphiotrichum oblongifolium, aromatic aster, it's almost like its own little shrub. So, uh, it is fine out there by itself. It can be it can be as much as three feet wide and about two feet tall. So I wouldn't want to put three of them together unless this was a significantly large landscape. Mm -hmm. I think it's it's good for people to start understanding, okay, well, I don't just slap dash 
Like I don't just go to Midwest Natives Nursery or wherever and buy up these native plants. And I don't go back to my landscape and just, well, I'm just gonna, you know, wing it, you know. <laughs> you can kind of visualize that if you group things together by likeness, usually in yes. groups of three yes. or five or seven, as opposed to just, mm -hmm. well, I'm just gonna throw these here and these here and hope it all works out. <laughs> We all start there. <laughs> that's how we. That's how we all start. Yep. That's how. I'm not going to say there's anything wrong yeah. with that when you're starting out because you got to start somewhere. Exactly. And that's also how. And that's how. So how we shop, right? We look at plants as as these cool little things on a shelf at the store, and we're like, oh, that's pretty. I want to. I want to take that home. I want to have that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we should pull out the cell phone first and and do a couple minutes of research to make sure. Um, yeah. There's always these people in our plant groups that are like. I'm a plopper, not a planner. And, you know, we <laughs> chuckle a bit because we've all been there. You know, we all go and make an impulse purchase and then we get home. We're like, well, this doesn't. Where it doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't go <laughs> anywhere. Um, <laughs> detour. Um, uh, detour. Yeah. Now, I, I like the idea of a garden perpetually in bloom. Um, in our plant society, we encourage people to plant for the seasons, to always kind of have a mindset that, not only is it pleasurable for us to see things um, in all seasons and bloom doing something, it's 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 nice for us visually and emotionally, but it's also obviously nice for the creatures that we're trying to create habitat for because then there's always sources of pollen and nectar and yada yada. Um, what are some of your favorite seasonal changes in the garden? Autumn. Yeah. The best season of them all. All the others, I, I just blah. Spring, spring drives me batty. I do not like spring at all, which puts me at odds with about 99% of other gardeners. Uh, like you said earlier, uh, I've cut down the garden and now I'm left with a moonscape and I have to wait a couple of weeks for mm -hmm. everything to green mm -hmm. up and, and fill in all the holes again. And it's just, mm -hmm. it's depressing. Each year I kept, keep adding more and more spring flowers that hopefully will bloom earlier and earlier. And it's just, it's just not happening. Summer is terrible because it's hot and muggy and there's chiggers. I just don't, I just don't enjoy it. I, I, I just, oh, well, fall is my time. It's getting cooler. Um, that's when I do most of my planting here at headquarters is in the fall. Um, there's, there's less weed pressure. There's less pressure on the plants because they're usually cooler temps and, and, and a little bit more rain, hopefully, and they can spend, they can keep rooting out because the soil temperatures are going to remain at 50 degrees, uh, a lot longer than the air temperature is going to remain at 50 degrees. So they can keep rooting out and they're going to leap out in the spring and, and I just love all those colors. I love, mm -hmm. we always think about fall color as trees and shrubs, and that is shortchanging 80% of everything else. Our grasses turn beautiful colors. Liatris turns beautiful colors. Milkweed turns beautiful colors. Coneflowers, wild senna, coreopsis. Uh, there are so, so many species, that, so many species of herbaceous perennial flowers that have wonderful fall foliage. And then again, brown mm. is a color too. I, I love the transition of all these fall colors into winter and it's not because I'm a goth at heart I think it's surprising to you know for example and and I know it's not strictly native to Nebraska but I love shrubby St. John's wort um the bees mm. love it um it's an amazing plant I use it a lot and I just was really surprised when I saw the fall color on it or even the native roses um because I use mm -hmm. those quite a bit even though they can be a bit aggressive and spread I, I don't know. The fall color was surprising to me. It's kind of like, well, I already love you, but now like I'm never getting rid of you. Um, like you were never, you were never getting dug out ever, ever, ever. 
Um, so that was really just kind of like the cherry on the cake. It's it's amazing how versatile some of these plants are. You can have flowers and then you can have berries or rose hips or whatnot and then fall color. And to know that it's all meant to be here in a large sense. But those are really great seasonal changes. The wild senna. It's, it's senna hebecarpa, and there's also senna marilandica. So those are our two sennas. I'm butchering the Latin. It doesn't matter, guys. You know what I'm talking about. And Latin is more precise than common names. So use it. That's my speech. The senna, like if you were to, if you were to be giving, you know, if I'm taking your class right now and I raise my hand and I'm like, where would I use senna? Where would wild senna be appropriate? What would you, what would your impulse be? Yeah, I would use it as a single specimen plant uh, where you need something taller and where you don't mind having a healthy number of seedlings pop up around it. Uh, because it seeds, it's mm. it, it seeds only need ten days of cold moist stratification, which isn't very long. So you get a lot of seedlings, and it is, you will see it recommended as a um, moisture loving plant. Um, but its taproot is so uh, incredibly deep and 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 so resilient. I have it growing in dry conditions, and it does just fine. So there's also that mm. caveat about a lot mm -hmm. of native plants when you're researching. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily what sites say what books say <laughs> you gotta mm -hmm. plants will surprise you yeah i i grow button bush um and it's it's literally in deep shade alongside my house on the north side of my house and you know everything i've ever read about button bush says it needs full mm -hmm. sun and i'm like not mine is it still like, flower mine's totally yeah cool. flowers it i mean it looks super healthy and everything and i'm like Hmm, okay. And you hear about, you know, swamp milkweed. I mean, just the name evokes that it needs mm -hmm. a boggy sort of, but you know, you grow it in full, full sun, dry soil, and it does just fine. Yeah. And um, I'm glad you, you, you discussed, you brought up swamp milkweed or red milkweed or Asclepias incarnata, whatever you want to call it. Um, I've had people say to me, well, I bought this plant. It looked great for a couple of years and then it just died. What happened? What did I do wrong? And I'm like, mm. well, it's a perennial, but it's not a long lived perennial. So there are caveats mm. to when you see perennial, it doesn't mean it's going to be there for 30 years like a compass plant, right? So uh, Asclepius uh, uh, incarnata isn't meant to be around for very long. So plan for something to take over um, in three years. Mm. Mm. That's right. Cause the, and I feel like plant catalogs do try to point that out. It's just when you, you know, you go to a nursery, I mean, a lot of times if something's a short lived perennial, it's not going to say on the tag. And you know what? It's probably not going to sell if it says short lived perennial, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> right. I've been saving the most important question oh, today. No. Um, I know it's the, I know it's the one we're all wanting the answer for. Don't the dandelions need saving. Don't they need saving? Oh, then? yeah. Don't we need to save the dandelions? <laughs> um, yeah, I know we should probably thank the dandelion because it's the gateway drug that in, has introduced many of us to truly native plants, to what native plants even are. So I know that there's that caveat, right? That, okay, well, the dandelion has led us to this dialogue, a lot of mm. us. I guess. Should people go beyond the dandelion? What should they take away from uh, from all the talk every year about saving the dandelions? Yeah, so you are referring to the thousands of memes that crop up every April 
um, saying that, yeah, leave your dandelions. Don't spray them. Don't pull them out. They're incredible. They're critical mm -hmm, for pollinator mm -hmm. support. Okay, let's let's try and unpack that a little bit. So yeah, don't spray, don't spray your dandelions. We don't need to have more spray. Um, I think I think a lot of people are concerned about dandelions in their lawns because we want to have these clean green carpets that are monocultures, which we all know is is not beneficial and and in any for any sort of ecosystem service that we could possibly imagine. Uh, but yeah, don't you don't need to waste your time spraying dandelions or or ripping them out. Um, I actually kind of like them as a ground cover uh, um, among my beds where they sneak in because their big old leaves can shade out the ground and compete other compete against other weeds and prevent weed seeds from germinating that need sunlight. So think like crabgrass or foxtail dandelion leaves are going to sh shade them out. Mm. Uh, now dandelions are are not critical for pollinators. They are not. Uh, the only pollinator they might be supporting is honeybees because those species evolved together in their original ecosystems. Uh, I guarantee you, if you are planting native plants, you know, I have a whole blog post somewhere on my website about native plant species that bloom, that bloom before, during, and right after the dandelion peak bloom time. And, and there's a lot of them. It's only a partial list and it's already got dozens on there. But if you have these native plants around, around dandelions, you're going to see what's getting in action and what's not getting action. Plus dandelions aren't a host plant for very much of anything. So if you're supporting butterflies, you want to be supporting their caterpillars. It's not just about supporting adult butterflies coming for nectar. You got to have the young. And that goes, you know, up and down for lots mm. of other insects and bugs. You know, save save the dandelion or, or or I guess don't don't spray the dandelion. I'm totally, I'm totally with that. But to think of the dandelion as this incredibly important resource is just is just nuts. Mm. Whoever is is curiosity is piqued um, at the mention of the blog post. I'll I'll include that in the show notes because that sounds like it's a really cool read. Yeah, I've even got a T-shirt about that. <laughs> nice. So you can you you can wear it. You can wear it. <laughs> nice. That will be in the show notes as well. <laughs> um. So I laughed out loud when I got to chapter three and read the segment you did on mm. HOAs. Um. That was so it funny was. to me like dark comedy. <laughs> um, I, I was curious how much of this was written from personal experience. I know you don't have to share any like super personal details, um, but it wasn't clear to me if you if you guys currently lived in an HOA or you've had experience with your business working with HOAs, um, where that knowledge came from. We curious. do live in an HOA, but it is not really functional at this point. Um, no, my experience has come with working with clients who do live in HOAs, especially, especially clients who have to present a plan to the HOA board before we can get approval to do their do their landscape, as well as just talking with other designers and, and, and reading their books about working with HOAs and, and all that good stuff. You know, HOAs, I mean, you've got, you've got, you got two groups here. You got HOAs, and then you have the uh, weed ordinance laws and whatever municipality you live in, and the whole system of the mm. whole Gestapo system of where neighbors report you because it's not weed control driving around town looking to go, aha, gotcha. It's neighbors that, for some reason, you know, just have 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 something to do on their Saturday afternoon and report you online. Um, but yeah, those are those are two different beasts, and there's two different ways of 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 approaching working with them. HOAs versus you know weed inspectors, mm. weed superintendents, weed ordinance laws. The good thing is we have so many wonderful uh, victories going on right now across the country with HOAs, with with municipalities, laws, uh, codes being changed. I mean, it's happening, but it is incredibly slow. Mm. But it's happening. 
And I feel like an important piece of this kind of ties into my next question, um, where we talk about the concept of cues to care. Um, I know this kind of this concept is very helpful when it comes to winning over our neighbors or, you know, kind of meeting some of these guidelines of HOAs where, um, well, why don't you describe to us what cues of care means? What's the background for that concept? Let's back up even a little bit more and have, a, have an even better segue and say that reason people are going to report you is because they interpret your landscape as looking weedy and messy. Now, again, anything but a lawn is going to look weedy and messy, even if you have intentionally done massing and grouping, and you've kept plants under two feet tall, and you put a, you know, whatever, blah, blah, blah. You, you've carefully selected plants that aren't going to self-sow all over the place and, and be weedy and aggressive. It, it doesn't matter. Uh, most neighbors are going to look at anything but a lawn as, as messy, weedy, and needs to be mowed down because there are velociraptors living in it, and they have kids. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> cues to care. So cues to care are basically design elements in, in a landscape that can help a wilder landscape appear more intentional and also more welcoming uh, to to humans. One of the easiest things to do is have real as is to have long pathways going through your space or any kind of pathway. It doesn't have to be long. Having sculptures, having benches, having uh, pergolas and arbors, having a stone wall. Um, uh, having a sign that says just this is a native plant pollinator habitat that is supporting native bees and butterflies and requires and is drought tolerant. Just, you know, a simple sentence like that can go a long ways uh, being a cue to care. So those are what cues of care, right? Basically ways to show that it, there's there's human access, human purpose. This is an intentional space. You are welcome to come in here. Um, there is There are no lions. There are no velociraptors. Everything's okay. Come have a Mike's, Mike's Heart mm -hmm. Lemonade with me. Yeah, just just putting it out there that this is an intentional space. This isn't a neglected space. Um, this is just a different thing that we're doing. And here's yeah. what we're doing. And it's not that we just don't want to break out the lawnmower. <laughs> I do think with cues to care, they can only go so far. I mean, if you have uh, a garden that definitely just looks like you threw up a bunch of seed and 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 the plants are eight feet tall and they're flopping over into the sidewalk there are things that you do have to address that are going to upset your neighbors you can't have super tall plants flopping into the sidewalk as they walk by that you know that has to be changed e sure. even though you love that iron weed more than anything in the world it has to go it's got to go somewhere else away from the sidewalk well i mean and this goes back to the in the right place it's the right plant uh, near a sidewalk where we might not be on top of it or it might spread right into our neighbors, whatever. I mean, it's kind of about, about being thoughtful and being considerate and evaluating whether that's the right plant for that spot. So, you know, and there's some stuff that's wilder, that's plants that thick it out and, and things like that. And they're meant yeah. for wilder spaces, like truly yeah. much wilder spaces than, than a front yard yeah. in the suburbs. So just makes sense. Hippie gardens can still be tidy. We can be tidy messes. That's possible. It's not easy. I'm not going to lie to anybody. It's not easy. And it's not easy. No. <laughs> the climate, the weather changes every year. There's different pressures. I can't believe how bad crabgrass is this year in places where I've never seen crabgrass in my life. So it's it's just different every year. I think 
I, what's comforting to me, this is probably the year that I've been the busiest with all these different projects that I want to do and all these different things that I've said yes to, and then been like, oh crap, I actually don't have the time for that. Um, I've neglected my garden much more this year than any other year. And it's, it's okay. I mean, I think it's mature enough now that even if I bare, you know, bare minimum do the like, okay, I get out once a month and I do an extensive weeding. I feel mm -hmm. like it's forgiving, you know, a traditional garden mm -hmm. that's, it's really just a mountain of mulch with a few, you know, ornamental plants plopped in. That's not going to be very forgiving if you only weed once a month. It's going to be, I think, much more obvious to people and and seem like a space that's being neglected than than my naturalistic sort of meadowscape in the front of my yard. Um, you wouldn't notice if I neglected it a little bit more. I mean, I'll notice, but most people driving by, they they see the flowers, they see. Oh yeah, no, yeah, no, absolutely. To them, like they don't they don't bat an eye. I mean, it probably looks exactly the same to them it's still like, it's still okay. It's still forgiving as long as you don't totally just, oh, well, I put these native plants in and uh, I'm just going to go back to my life now and it's going to take care of itself. Like, as long as you're kind of under that assumption, I've got to manage this. I've got to have a plan. I've got to be involved because mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, I'm the steward of this space. And I live in a society of people who are going to get angry and call code enforcement if I do nothing. Um, I've got to do something. It's like this new idea that that people are finally, I feel like starting to accept that the world isn't super neat and tidy. Kind of like you talked about that green carpet that people are trying to maintain outside. Green carpet isn't sustainable. It's not real. There's there's nothing real to that. It's It's kind of like a facade. So we can try to have a little bit of order and that's that's great and that's reasonable and rational, but this idea that everything's going to be immaculate outside is just an illusion. I got, a, I, I waxed a little philosophical there. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. You, you were getting me, you were getting me thinking about the terms mm. management and maintenance and just how I did a blog post once where I said, well, yes, maintaining a lawn is easier than maintaining a native plant garden, but it's more work. And that, that was, you know, that's that's a fun that's a fun sentence to say. We know how to maintain a lawn. We grew up doing it. It is easy. You mow it once a week. Your mom, your parents made you go outside and mow it. You know how to turn on the mower. You know, you know all that stuff. It's easy. It's a known quantity. It's simple. Um, but I am not outside spending an hour mowing every mm. week. I'm probably outside spending 15 minutes just walking around the garden and noticing, oh, that's what that plant's doing. Oh, that's what that plant's doing. Oh, no, there's a mulberry tree seedling. I better clip that up. So it's you have to know more or you have to be willing mm. to learn more. But I don't think it's necessarily more time or 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 the time feels differently, at least. It's not, I don't feel like it's as intensive and exhausting to me because mowing a lawn, I feel like I'm going to pass out and get a migraine afterwards. Um, walking the garden, clipping things or 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 you know, thinning out the red back you heard of the black-eyed Susan. That's not that's not stressing me out. I mean, we've probably got something like three quarters of an acre. And I, since we have lived in this house, I have mowed the lawn a single time. And that was the last time because I literally felt like I was going to have a heart attack. It was like, it was hot. And I was like, I cannot believe that people do this every week. 
and don't die. <laughs> yeah, I I couldn't do it. And that was a huge part of my motivation to make naturalistic landscapes around the house and just, you know, around the the property line and stuff, because I was just like, this is crazy. It's crazy that there's all this lawn that people kill themselves mowing. I, like you said, would much rather spend that time walking around, looking at stuff in bloom, looking at the hummingbirds that come to visit because they do um, all these different beetles and dragonflies and stuff. And I would rather, you know, be out clipping things back or like pulling a few weeds out. It's it's much less labor intensive than mowing. I don't think pushing a heavy mower in uh, 95 degree weather in the middle of summer it is somehow no. less labor intensive <laughs> than going out in the morning when it's cool and, and pulling a few weeds here and there. So, um, but I think it's. Now people, people are going to say you have to have lawns if you have kids yes which that always drives me up a wall too because my kid doesn't hang out in the lawn he hangs out in the plants getting sticks learning about spiders picking up roly-polies you know making me a bouquet so how would you i mean i know that would be part of your response but how would you respond to someone who's like but we need lawns for our kids like what would your response be uh read a new garden ethic and or uh, some of richard louv's books about just how incredibly important kids experience in a more diverse natural setting is mm. to their creativity to their math scores to their verbal scores towards learning to work with one another uh, in groups there are so many studies now that show the benefits even just microbes and there are studies now that show that kids who are out there among native the plants getting all these microbes on their skin and breathing them in actually have better resilience to not developing mm. allergies uh, as, as they grow up because they've been exposed to all this stuff. So yeah, kids, kids need to be out there. Now, I'm glad we kind of touched on preparation and maintenance. Um, I want us to, to very much make sure we don't not touch on that because I think it's important, the idea of preparation the idea of maintaining things like maintaining is the secret sauce to native plant gardens. It really is. You got to maintain it. Why should people not gloss over this stuff? Well, what I'm, what I'm finding this year too, this year has been really especially difficult uh, with, with annual weed pressure in, in ways that I have never seen before. And so could not possibly anticipate, but it's got me rethinking how I do things in the future with site prep. Uh, when you plant a garden in the spring, uh, you are going to have annual weed pressure. It's it's just you, you have no idea what's in the what's in the soil seed bank. You have no idea until you go in there and you start messing around and you start putting plants in the ground and then you start watering um, because you do have to water these 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 plants in right and that water is going to be nurturing all the seeds that are in the soil seed bank. Uh, so I think I think if you uh, especially if you have a larger area and you're going to be spending a lot of money on it, it, it might be worth thinking, uh, focusing mm -hmm. on a fall planting uh, where there's not going to be so much weed pressure or consider doing an entire season of prep work, especially if it's a landscape where it's sort of been left to its own devices. It's not a landscape where you've put down a lot of chemicals and pre-emergence and it's been pampered for a decade and it's, it's lush and green. You can probably get away with killing it off and planting straight into it and not having a ton of weed pressure, though there's still gonna be something popping up. But I think, I think weeds are where we really 
get into trouble, especially annual weeds. In, in some instances, it's okay to maybe let the annual weeds do their thing because they'll fade out in the second year as the good plants establish. But if it's a front yard landscape, you don't want your, your beds overrun with foxtail and crabgrass because that is going to look exceptionally weedy to your neighbors. And uh, I'm certainly facing issues with that this year on a few projects. I wanted to talk just a tiny bit at the very end um, about the concept of what a matrix is, what its function is, um, why people should think about using layers. Um, I know you talked about layers in the beginning. So let's just kind of circle back around to that and end on that, that note of um, what is a matrix? Why should people utilize this in a naturalistic landscape? What's the benefit? All right, let's go with the most simplest definition of matrix. There are there are different definitions, but generally matrix means uh, yeah, you are planting you are planting in in layers. So when I say matrix, I mean that we are first putting down a grid of sedge or warm season bunch grasses um, on 12 inch centers. So everything is spaced 12 inches apart. It is just a grid. Think about laying down a gingham style blanket or tablecloth or something, you have a grid. There you go. You have a plant every 12 inches on the grid. Okay, that's maybe gonna be like Budula gracilis bugrama or shade carex albicans, white tinge sedge. And then you're gonna come in and you're gonna mass and drift your flowers. And some of those flowers are going to be ground cover plants. Some of them are going to be plants that get two or three feet tall and be part of your seasonal theme layers. So you have different, you see, that's where the bloom succession comes in. You have different flowers blooming different times of year. And some are going to be higher architectural plants. And those will be the least number of plants in your landscape. Things like, I don't know, Joe pie weed or a small tree or a small shrub or something like that. So you're going to have probably your most plants in that matrix main ground cover layer, there are going to be sedges or grasses placed every 12 inches on a grid pattern. And then you're going to come in and your second most amount of plants will be flowers blooming throughout different times of the year and masses and drifts. And then you might put in some Eryngium eucopholium rattlesnake master or whatever else, some Solidago speciosa as tolerant architectural mm. accent. Plants. So the matrix is in essence like throwing down a plant blanket that's basically going to provide this whole bottom mm. layer of the garden. And then we're kind of layering on right. all the other elements, whether it's, you know, height or seasonal mm -hmm. interest or whatever. We're kind of layering all of that on top of the cake. Mm -hmm. Got it. And this is and this is how nature works. You go out to a prairie, and this is how the plants are organizing themselves. So that's why I think matrix uh, style design is probably the best, closest method we have right now to re replicating an echo of a larger woodland meadow or or sunny prairie or whatnot. I like to think of these sedges and grasses that we're putting down every 12 inches as the base layer as the living green mulch. They are replacing wood annual wood mulch applications. If we're using plugs, we're just putting mulch down one time at planting, and then we're going to let the sedge and the grass, we're going to let that matrix layer take over and be the living green mulch from then on. If in a couple years, um, some grasses and sedges get outcompeted or shaded out by something taller or wider, Great. Oh, well, that's how succession works in a natural landscape. Um, but the point was to cover the ground as soon as you, soon as possible in the first year, the first two years for weed control and other site stability issues. Because for some people who might not be familiar with starting new garden beds, you're, everything is going to be very, very small in the very beginning. And then as time goes by, you know, some plants don't get to their mature size until like three years after you plant them or even longer. So you're kind of accounting for that empty space in the beginning. And if, like you said, things get encroached or things get competed out, 
you're you're thinking about the short term and weed control and providing that barrier and then as things mature in age and the garden evolves you know it's it's done its job yeah and the plants are going to self-select anyway the plants are going to move around anyway they're going to show you what they like and what the, where they prefer to be so even if you put something somewhere it's going to be like you know what i don't like it here i'm going to die try me somewhere else or don't try me somewhere else try something totally different species so the plants are going to teach us yeah it's and you know we're using plugs so we're using you know very small very young plants because it's more economical and they have a lot less transplant shock than a one gallon container that costs 20 bucks uh, so yeah, they're they're small plants and they will grow faster in a loam soil and a little bit slower in clay, but it all works out in the end. I think for for people getting started out, all this is really intimidating. Yep. So as as clear as we can make <laughs> things, we try. Um, it is a it is a big learning curve, and I just think if we can try to change the status quo, like in the sense of we are teaching people how to get back into nature and we're teaching people that it's it's not as daunting as you think it is. And you're just getting your hands in the dirt, just being in nature. Maybe we can retrain people on on what the usual Saturday thing is or, you know, how we're teaching our kids to care for our landscapes or you know, maybe instead of paying the neighbor boy to um, come mow my lawn, I'm I'm paying him to come help uh, pull exotic invasives out of my naturalistic landscape. Like we can just slightly change the way that we go about our day to day. And it's an adjustment, but I think it's one that we can make. Absolutely. So, um, yeah. so yeah. thank you for all the work that you're doing in Lincoln and elsewhere in Nebraska. Um, and it was great having you on today. Oh, thank you so much, Stephanie. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to the Plant Native Nebraska podcast. If you need notes on anything mentioned in today's episode, check our website, plant-native-nebraska.captivate.fm for more info. I want you to know you've made this podcast special just by listening in. But if you found real value in today's talk, you can both financially support future episodes and dive deeper into the topics we share by finding us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash plant native Nebraska. Thanks for listening. I also wanted to put out a special call to action to our listeners to assist at the pollinator plantings at Mason Park in Bellevue. You can visit the Bellevue Native Plant Society webpage at bellevuenativeplants.org Click on the local volunteers needed tab and scroll down to see all of our work days. See you there. And as always, thanks for listening.